0: Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today is Friday, July 14th, 2023. I'm your co-host Nick Janusa here by myself today because we're about to air Matt's interview with Martha Hunt Handler. Before we do, a quick trigger warning for the interview. The conversation about Martha's book does include the topic of suicide. And we'll get right into it right after this word from one of our sponsors.
1: This episode is brought to you by KitCaster.
0: Today on TPT, we are joined by Martha Hunt Handler, the board president of the Wolf Conservation Center, a New York based nonprofit organization whose mission is to advance the survival of wolves by inspiring global community through education, advocacy, research and recovery. They're also playing a leading role in increasing the number of two critically endangered wolf species, the Mexican gray wolf and the red wolf, both of whom were extinct in the wild due to human depredation. The WCC has been a critical partner in creating genetic diversity in the captive populations and rewilding them. Martha has been an environmentalist and wolf activist for over 40 years, and she's also an award-winning author of Winter of the Wolf. Martha, welcome to The Planet Today.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt. I love that you're doing this.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. We're absolutely thrilled to have you on. So a little background, the Wolf Conservation Center is not too far from where I grew up, so this one... uh, literally hits close to home. <laughs> so I want to start this off you know, at the beginning. So what first got you interested in environmentalism?
1: I grew up in Northern Illinois, almost near the Wisconsin border, not too far. It was very rural. We were like the, the first house and we were surrounded by woods. And I think my parents fought a lot, so I was just out in the woods as much as I could possibly be. And I could hear animals talking and they were incredibly agitated. And I didn't really understand for a while what it was until the bulldozers came in and started flattening all the forest to become houses. So I guess we were the first house in the subdivision. And I was just devastated and sort of like so deep in my heart at such a young age that I knew that this was what I came here to do was somehow protect the environment. And so I went to school and made up a major of environmental conservation at University of Colorado Boulder. Um, At the time, there wasn't anything like it. My parents thought we were, I was completely crazy. I had started off in engineering and decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I got a job as an environmental consultant, moved a lot, but mostly in DC. And And the work was good and interesting and i was doing kind of all different stuff but none of it spoke to my heart because a lot was in oil and natural gas and nuclear Mm -hmm. and superfund sites so still kind of feeling like this wasn't quite what i was supposed to do um but i kept at it for like 20 years and then we moved from los angeles to like an hour outside of new york in westchester Mm -hmm. and I had just had my fourth child in five years, so decided I was no longer going to be commuting anywhere to work. And I started hearing wolves howling, which I knew would be impossible because they hadn't been in New York in over 100 years. So I kept asking everybody, you know, what, why am I hearing wolves? And no one knew the answer. Mm-hmm. They all thought it was coyotes. And I was like, no, they sound very different. Um, And one day I just walked into the woods one day, knocked on this trailer next to an enclosure with two wolves in it, met this beautiful young French woman. Her name is Alain Grimond. She told me that she wanted to open up what was going to be the Wolf Conservation Center to save two critically endangered wolf species. Um, We just started chatting and she said, would you like to help me? You know, I believe in these things. Mm -hmm. They happen when they're supposed to happen. It was a perfect time for me. I had some time on my hands. And I'd always had a wolf in my dream since I was little that was a black wolf that just sort of showed me maybe a better path to take, better friends to hang out with. Just it was very interesting. So it just felt like, oh, my gosh, this is just the most perfect thing I could ever have happen in my life. So it's been an amazing 23 years or something.
0: That's awesome. It sounds like everything just kind of came together, like you said, right yeah. place, right time. And you know, when it, when it makes sense, it just kind of makes sense. <laughs> yep. That is so cool. So my next question was going to be how you got involved with the Wolf Conservation Center, but, you know, you, you'd started that story there. So I guess let's talk, what kind of work do you do as board president of the Wolf Conservation Center?
1: So we've grown really fast and we are about to, um, announce a public, um, capital campaign to raise $17 million to build a new education center. Right now we're sort of in a, a little old cabin And we can't teach that many people. We still see about 25,000 people a year, most children, schools that come and Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and that kind of thing. But we really want to improve our education since that is the most important thing. And so we're going to have like glam camping and new really fix up our whole campus we have raised like 13 so far so we're well on our way and we hope this year that we break ground. So i would say the majority of my work right now is uh fundraising,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know meeting people that might be able to help us, might be able to sponsor us, that kind of thing. Um, we're also becoming just a much more professional organization. We have we're up to 15 employees now so putting all those legal uh policies into effect that for a while, we were kind of loose and didn't have to do much. And we kind of relied on volunteers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not doing that anymore. So we still have lots of volunteers, but we are really become so much more professional. So it's been exciting. We just did our strategic plan and kind of realized what's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is like we put ourselves out of business because people are so educated and they understand how important wolves are. We don't need to be around anymore because they're back in the ecosystems and healthier than ever.
0: It's, it's really important too. I know you had mentioned earlier, just education in general is, is really critical to conservation. But um, I used to work for the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo and I did environmental education there. And God, I could go on for hours about different stories about just connecting with these young people. And it, it really, you, you feel like you're making a big difference when you see these people who are hopefully going to be in the conservation field for the next 30, 40, 50 years, you know, long after I'm hopefully knock on wood retired, yeah. but it's it's so exciting to see that next, you know, group of conservationists take shape and and being able to play a part in that is so so important. So, it's really great to hear that, you know, education is is one of the main reasons that you're looking to expand the campus and I think that's going to have an awesome impact for wolves at home and you know throughout the US.
1: Yes, I think it's so true that like we only learn what's put in front of us or what our parents teach us and mm-hmm. I think wolves have the worst PR yeah. on the planet, <laughs> you know, they've been used as like symbols for the devil. We've got Little Red Riding Hood which was really a fable about don't talk to strangers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And like I used to have a bumper sticker that said "Little Red Riding Hood lied." <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that about? Like, it was such a great opportunity to talk to people about you know the myths that you've heard about wolves. They're not killers. They're petrified of humans, and for a very good reason.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I think there's only been two documented wolf killings of humans since recorded history. I mean, it's just crazy how low the numbers are. Um, But, you know, we're still dealing with like in New Mexico, they built for the bus stops. They're called like wolf cages so that when you're sitting at the bus, you don't have to worry about a wolf eating your kid. Like just the visual of what that is doing to these poor kids. Yeah. It's so wrong.
0: (laughs) And and it just creates a really unfortunate stigma where those are going to be people who grow up to be afraid of wolves. And in some cases... You know, we're going to be talking to people, I'm sure, who say, hey, we need to protect wolves. We need to do a big fundraising campaign to help do that. And you're going to run into people who say, why? It's better if they're gone because they're not going to eat my kids as if they were ever going to to begin with.
1: Right. And our two biggest opponents that we face all throughout the states are the ranchers because they don't want their livestock to become mm-hmm. prey. But mm-hmm. it's point zero 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 nine percent of livestock is taken out by wolves. Much more is taken out by domestic dogs. And they have so many resources that they can implement as, you know, because at one point cow and sheep were wild and they knew what to do to keep big predators away, which was like to keep mm-hmm. to keep in a big bunch that all the biggest ones are on the outside. They look so fierce that no one's gonna go near them. You keep the young ones, the sick ones, the old ones, the diseased ones in the center to protect them. Mm-hmm. That's all been lost, but it would only take like a generation or two of having a dog or, um, wranglers on horseback going around and getting them to be in their formation again. But unfortunately they're feeding all over our lands, our BML lands. Um, and so they're, they're just willy nilly all over the place. They don't have any. So yeah, if one is like stumbling around and a wolf sees it, it, you can't really blame the wolf. Yeah. And then the other, you know, group is the hunters and they, are not listening to science at all that proves that wolves make the populations that they're going after while the ungulates, the, the elk, the deer, the bison, it just makes those herds so much stronger and healthier when they have predators that are taking out mm-hmm. the ones that aren't doing so well. Um, but like you say, it's just been passed down from generations, you know, it's what, it's what their great grandfathers taught them. And so there's just been this hatred of wolves and it's only recently that we're starting to make some headway getting both groups in a room together it used to be so bad like it would just they wouldn't listen to one another at all but they're starting to and there's money that's available to you know hire 4-h range writers and put flags up i mean they're really simple things that they can do and they're starting to listen a little bit So I have hope in that it's come a long way just in the last 10 years. So hopefully it'll continue in this direction.
0: Progress is so interesting because it feels like it, Takes forever sometimes, and then all of a sudden, everything kind of starts to get moving all at once. So it sounds like you're just we're starting to get into that period where it's a lot more exciting.
1: (laughs) I hope so, but it's like you know, never before was science ever questioned. Yeah, I don't know. Science became political, and it's just not been good for anybody.
0: Yeah, it's exhausting. My my master's is in environmental policy, and I did a lot of climate change research throughout college and grad school. And God, so many of our classes were just talking about hey, there's going to be about 40% of people who think that no matter what you show them, it's wrong. Wow! And I imagine with wolf conservation, it's probably the same deal where people just don't trust it for whatever reason. So I know we've been alluding to the the role that wolves play in influencing prey populations, but I want to talk about just the the greater picture here. What role do wolves play in preserving our ecosystems?
1: So I think one of the most important, really short videos is how wolves change rivers and that is all about the reintroduction of wolves into yellowstone which happened in um 1995 through 1997. so before that wolves have been gone for almost 100 years and they were exterminated to protect livestock and prey species and without them there those prey species were just over grazing everything so the rivers were starting to just go all over the place because there wasn't any saplings and trees keeping the rivers in their banks because there wasn't any stabilization. Those were all getting eaten down to nothing. So the beavers disappeared because there weren't any trees and the songbirds disappeared because there wasn't any trees. And there was hope for what wolves might be able to do, but no one could have guessed the dramatic effects into just a few years that Yellowstone went back to being the Yellowstone that people knew it as way back in the day. And it was really, this footage is amazing just to see rivers go from being spread out to just going right back into their banks and everything stabilizing. So it's been an amazing visual story for us to quickly share with people, but they, you know, when you're a top predator, you affect everything underneath you. And I get that a lot. Like Martha, of all the things to say, wolves, but they're such a keystone, species just such an important iconic it's just very necessary for ecosystems to stay in balance.
0: Yeah and Keystone species was the exact thing that I was going to bring up before you had said that. So yeah, you know, any anytime we're looking at a, a major species like that, like you said, it's not like we're just saving that one. We're we're saving every single animal, plant, insect that is part of that food web. So you know, it, it, conservation is so interesting because I feel like it's just a million little puzzle pieces that all come together. And it's a lot easier to get outsiders to care about saving wolves, saving elephants, saving whales than it is about algae or this one insect.
1: <laughs> yeah, it seems like the planet was so perfect. I mean, everything had its role. And then we came on the scene and I'm like, uh, <laughs> still trying to figure out our role here because we're not doing very well. It would seem like our role should be stewards to make sure that it's all balanced out, but we're not very good stewards.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that a, a lot of that conversation can be centered around indigenous peoples, because I, I feel like being stewards to the land and to the environment as a whole, it's just really ingrained in whatever culture that you want to look at, you know, different tribes from different parts of the U.S. all kind of have that same central, the environment, the land was here long before we were, it's our job to safeguard it and to protect it, and in turn, it will protect us. And I feel like as colonizers, we've kind of lost that that part of our society.
1: Right. It's so true. Like every single indigenous group was so in harmony with nature, um, and in America, they were they worked hand in hand with wolves. They were really good at understanding that ravens were showing wolves where animals were migrating all the the big hoofed animals because Uh a raven can't eat one of those unless someone kills it and then leaves it. So Mm -hmm. the wolves started following the ravens and then Native Americans started realizing, wow, ravens are showing wolves. We should be right behind the wolves. So it was just like one leading the other, and everyone benefiting in the end. That is
0: so interesting. And
1: then white man came to America and it just, it was just like them against You know, everything was considered vermin, or yeah, they needed to get rid of everything that they couldn't eat themselves.
0: Yeah, and and the one that I always think of with that is the American bison, and how you know we kind of just wiped them out for sport. Meanwhile, there's an entire group of people that relies on the bison as not only an important part of like their cultural identity and religious experiences, but food, grazing of land. You know, like we wiped out this animal almost entirely just to prove we could. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's conservation is, is conservation history is very frustrating at times because it's just kind of common sense did not always prevail. And I feel like a lot of times now we're like, Hey, this is just kind of the the right thing to do by all accounts. (laughs) Yes. Why haven't we been doing this? So my next question is more localized at the Wolf Conservation Center. So what does your team do to care for the wolves there and to foster wolf conservation in the wild?
1: Okay, so um, we are breeders and pre-releases of the two most critically endangered wolf species in North America. And those are the red wolves and the Mexican gray wolves. So in the Mexican gray wolf case, there was in 1998 seven left in the entire world, and all seven of them were related to each other. They were brought into captivity, and that's what started the breeding and pre-release program that we are part of. Um, Today, it's estimated there's maybe 220, so it's been somewhat successful. Uh, A little bit frustrating because they are now only allowing pup fostering programs, which means that, and this just happened this week, is. Right now is when all wolves are bo- born in the United States. Um so we had, I th- we think five wolves born to one of our Mexican gray couples, and we immediately let the fish and wildlife know. they own all of our Mexican gray wolves and our red wolves. So we tell them, we've gone into the den. We've seen three females, three males, could be two males. Um, and they say, okay, Let us look into what's going on in the wild. So because the most of the wolves in the wild, the adults are wearing collars. They know that if a wolf didn't move for a couple of days, likely she's denning and has had pups. So then the whole we have to go find a private plane. We usually are only given about three days. They want to do it before their eyes are open. Wolves are one of the only species where the mother will leave the pups in the den because maybe cause she's so smart that she knows if you take us all out, none of us are going to survive, you know? And so she, she smells humans. I mean, they don't like us. So I guess if we get too close, they want to leave anyway. She leaves, we go in and grab, maybe, you know, Fish and Wildlife has said, we're going to mm-hmm. take three of the pups. Um, we have a private plane lined up. Um, there's a couple of, companies that have been really good for us because we are so far away from obviously New Mexico and Arizona. So they're flown and it's so critical because they're so little, they can't go very long. They're yeah. putting in a backpack <laughs> with heat and um, some milk through a tube. Last year when we did this, the wolf, the pup, we only had one pup that was fostered. It was the last one of the season they were letting in and um, our wolf curator who takes care of our wolves meets up with the fish and wildlife department. Um, they now have armed guards because there's people that want to kill them. They hike into where the den site is and hopefully we'll put a, one of our pups in and take one of theirs out just to try to help this huge genetic diversity, um, hole we have. Um, and in that case last year the weather was so bad it was snowing and Mm -hmm. the mother wolf would not leave. (laughs) So they climbed back down, went to another den that was in Arizona, did the same thing. That mother also wouldn't leave. It was the same weather, but there was a hole in the top of the den. So they ended up dropping, not dropping, but, you know, putting somebody handed the wolf pup down there. And within like 10 minutes, it was nursing. So we all went well. But it is only 50% of wolves, even in captivity, make it to the first year. So that's why we don't think it's a very wonderful program. We would rather introduce a whole family that is used to being with each other. Um, they have a much greater chance of survival and taking down a wolf pretty quick. So all this goes into getting one little pup that probably won't make it more than, I mean, even in the wild, they only live like five to seven years if they're healthy and everything goes well
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the wild. So it's just been frustrating with that, but at least they, their numbers are increasing unlike the red wolves, which are going to North Carolina. Um, they have not been following the Endangered Species Act. They have fought everything. So we're in lots of lawsuits with other environmental nonprofits trying to get them to comply. But um, they had a similar situation in 1973. There was only 14 left in the wild. And sadly, after all these years in the program, they only have 13 right now. Wow. So yeah, they're not doing good. There's a couple of big landowners um, with a lot of money and a lot of political clout that have really stopped them from releasing too many. So it's been a sad mm-hmm. situation, but anyway, though we have those wolves. We keep them off exhibit because we want them to keep their natural fear of humans. Mm-hmm. If they start coming up to the fence, um, when we, you know, walk by, they will not be, we have to report that and they will, you know, kind of be on the bad list. They won't get released because they would mm-hmm. probably not last long at all. They think humans are okay. And then we have three ambassador wolves, which are gray. Mexi- they're just gray wolves. They're not endangered. They were born in captivity, which means they can never be released. And we use them for education purposes. because I don't think we'd get a whole lot of visitors up to our center if we didn't have some wolves to show them. Mm-hmm. Um, we habituate them to people by raising them by hand for the first three months. So, yeah, we're feeding them with bottles. We're constantly Somebody is with them all the time. And so they're much more likely to come up to the fence, so the visitors get to see them. So we educate people. We're big advocacy, and that's all on our website and social media where you know different laws are being passed, and we get people to sign, to write to their senators, that kind of thing, which has been hugely helpful. Um, we've grown tremendously in that area because we put a bunch of cameras up so that we could just see what was going on in these endangered wolf um, enclosures, because we really don't know, you know? And if two wolves aren't getting along, or if they're fighting over territory or whatever, it's hard to see them, because there's so much brush in there. So the cameras allowed us to actually see what was going on. And we have now people around the world who are watching these cameras. It's about one of the only places you can see wolves this close up. Um, and the first time that we had wolf pups and there was a camera in the den, we. Had in the first, I don't know, 15 minutes, like 300,000 people log on, and the system just like.
0: <laughs> that is so cool.
1: But it was very cool. And it started us on like a whole new trajectory, realizing that, wow, people really crave seeing wolves inact yeah. every day. Those wolves are all fed um, the deer that are killed on the roads. So it was very hard during COVID because there wasn't any uh, yeah, cars driving. Yeah. <laughs> The one contingent who we hadn't planned for. Um, and besides that, we have a scientist now that is seeing if there's other areas that might be suitable for wolf release um, outside of the states that are currently have um, areas. So that's been really big. Yeah. So advocacy, education, research, and then part of these two species of survival plan, pretty much we do, but we have really fun programs. You can come with a camera during the camera programs and we open up holes in the fence so you can put your lenses through. We have sleeping with wolves and they're crepuscular, So they're most um, vocal from dusk until dawn. So it's really fun camping with them to listen to them all howling. Cause that's when you can, that's when you realize that we have like 45 wolves. It's like, they're all different and they, but one starts howling, they all start howling. So it's magical.
0: That's probably so cool. That's probably such an interesting experience. (laughs) Yeah. So, I I do have a question about, um, this is going to get more into the policy of conservation here, but can you tell us a little bit more about America's relationship with wolves and how the restored legal rights to hunt wolves in the Northern Rockies is dangerous for the survival of the species?
1: Yeah. So, you know, not following science at all, Trump took them off the endangered species list, which has killed us all. A judge ruled against this, Yeah, but Biden reinstated it. So there's still the situation. As we were talking before, it's it's really simple science now. We know what happens um, when you take out wolves. And when people are, are allowed to shoot them, gas them, trap them, I mean, horrible means of killing them. Um, it's usually the alpha wolf that gets taken out, one that was probably the smartest, probably the most willing to try something new, go someplace different. Mm -hmm. And when you take out the alpha, you have now dispersed all the rest of the wolves that were in that pack to go form their, their own pack. So now you're really increasing the number of wolves, which is not what you're meant to be doing. And as much as we have all the science to show that it's still not affecting them. So one of the, the latest taxes we've been doing is raising money to buy the wolf licenses. So then, if we don't go kill wolves after we buy the wolf licenses, they're just gone
2: mm-hmm.
1: um but it's it's been, been shocking, like how many people want to kill them. but I was proud of uh I mean Wisconsin opened up their hunting season, and like I think in three days, two hundred wolves were killed, which was over their quota that they wanted of one eighty so there are so many people that still want to kill them, which is shocking. But the there was a bunch of hunters that put up huge billboards that said, real hunters don't hunt wolves, which I thought was really great. I mean, it's so yeah. it's so foreign to me because our dogs are 99% wolf, no matter what it looks like. I mean, they're brothers. Like yeah. we love our dogs. I'm just not quite sure, you know, why this hatred persists, but it's sad.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that billboard really speaks, you know, like we were talking about before with stewardship of the land. I know my late uncle was a a big hunter, but his whole thing was he hunted deer because he could use every ounce of meat on that deer to feed himself, his family for however many days. And he would turn it into venison jerky, sausage, ground venison, but not a single part of that went to waste. And, you know, that made sense to me because we've hunted for food for thousands, well, hundreds of years, thousands of years, I I never understood just the trophy hunting. And I feel like that's sort of what hunting for a wolf is.
1: Yes, definitely. My brother sounds the exact same. He's he's still in Illinois. He hunts all the time and he's begging me. I wish you would put wolves back here because they are, you know, going out and killing thousands of deer a year to call them because there's too many.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I just, Like we said before, it really just throws off the entire balance of the ecosystem. Yeah. So, Martha, this has been great. I definitely learned a lot. I know the listeners will too. Before we let you go, your book, Winter of the Wolf, that came out in 2020, was named a Barnes & Noble Top Indie Pick and an Amazon Bestseller. What is the book about and what takeaway do you hope that readers have from it?
1: So it'll sound depressing, but um, I started writing this book because my best friend, found her 12 year old son hanging. And we were both brought up incredibly spiritually to believe your soul is here for the, the time is supposed to be for you to do whatever you're supposed to do here, learn whatever you're supposed to leave, learn. And neither one of us could understand what he had done at 12 years old to be leaving already. She was also sure that it wasn't a suicide. So I was like dealing with with this and going to his funeral and listening to people say, well, if he was so depressed, why didn't you have him on antidepressants? Why wasn't he seeing a doctor? And the truth was he was a really happy, healthy, engaged boy. He had loads of friends. It just, none of those scenarios we imagined for a suicide made any sense. And so I started, I just like skated one day on a frozen lake, saw this deer frozen in the lake. And for some reason, her son's voice came to me and he said, this is your novel. And I had been looking for something to write about, and I just started writing. So it's the story loosely based on his life, but um, a sister is trying to deal in the aftermath with the death of her brother. She also doesn't believe it was a suicide. Um, she is such a proponent and a believer in her intuition, like she's sure that it wasn't a suicide. and. Because it's a mystery, I don't want to tell you what, but I'll just say it wasn't a suicide. (laughs) Um, So she does all these things because he was really into Inuit wisdom. So she goes and reads his Inuit books and believes that he can transform himself into another animal. She starts seeing a black wolf, which she believes is probably him because he was really into wolves. Um, She does like shamanic rituals. She does all these interesting things with her best friend to try to understand what happened to them. And in the end, I think my biggest message is that we move from a place of grief to gratitude and growth, that we understand that we were never promised a certain amount of time with anybody. So all we have is the minutes and we, what we have in the past. Um, my book starts with a quote by Banksy that says, they say you die twice, one time when you stop breathing, and a second time a bit later on when somebody says your name for the last time. So it's also a remembrance that we need to talk about these people. What did they teach us? What did we learn? What what made us laugh that they did? Because so often when someone passes away, it's like the funeral, we say all this nice stuff, and then we act like they were never here anymore. And it's so sad. Like we can carry that stuff on. So I think in the end, it's really about listening to your intuition because it's our superpower. It's like this thing that can save us in so many ways, and we often just neglect to listen to it, which is a sad thing. And then just, yeah, having hope that there's more to what we, what we see out there, that a life, a soul goes on and on and on. And yeah, that's my real message is hope. And I've had so many people contact me to say, this really helped me deal with my brother's death or my dad's death or my, and that's really what it's all about. That
0: honestly sounds like a a beautiful message that came out of a, a really difficult situation. So first off, my condolences to you, to your friend. Um, but it sounds like your, your take on this, you know, leading to, to hope and, and remembrance. I, th- I think that's something we could all learn a lot from. Yeah. So we will definitely link that in the show notes if anyone is interested in checking it out. But Martha, before we let you go, we do three fun rapid fire questions to close out every single one of our interviews. You ready? Yes. Yes. What is your favorite animal? A wolf. Kind of, kind of guessed that, but figured I would ask anyway. Number two, what is something you do to be more sustainable in your everyday life?
1: Get people out hiking because I feel like yeah, I have this this group called the Women's Wolf Pack, and I really did it to connect people women especially back to wolves and back to each other so that we're helping each other and we're looking at any nonprofits in the area that deal with environments and animals and having fundraisers for them and just growing awareness around that
0: love that so last one what is one topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today
1: definitely wolves please please come to our website and learn more about wolves and pass the word on and if you're anywhere in the area come visit us we just had a group last weekend from New Zealand that came from a bachelor, Whoa. bachelorette party to have a sleep out. I'm like, what?
0: <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. We'll, nice. we'll make sure to link the website, your social media um, and, and your book in the show notes. So if you're listening now, just swipe up and go click any of those that interest you. Aside from the website and you know, the, the Instagram account, where is the best place to keep up with what you're working on or the Wolf Conservation Center in general?
1: I think just nywolf.org. We try to keep it really up to date. Cool.
0: We will make, like I said, make sure to link that. Go swipe up, go click it. Martha, thank you again. This was amazing.
1: Really nice to meet you, Matt. Thanks for having me on.
0: And that will do it for today's episode of TPT. We'll be back on Friday for another episode. Thanks again to Martha Hunt Handler for her time today. Check out our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT in the meantime. For The Planet Today, I am Nick Janusa. See you on Friday.